0: Truly an honor and a privilege to uh, share God's word with you uh, this morning and uh, thankful to uh, Pastor Ken and the elder board for giving me this opportunity. This past week I uh, came across a definition of government that uh, went like this. Government, a group of people who excel in the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, applying the wrong remedies, yet all the while still expecting a perfect outcome. And no matter where you go in the world, it uh, doesn't take long to meet people who can tell you exactly how their respective government fits that definition. Last week, uh, Pastor Rogers started us on a series of some of the uh, more controversial issues that we are faced with in our society today. And uh, what better topic to get people talking or many times into a fight than the topic of government or politics? Well, this morning I'm not here representing one candidate or party. I'm not here to try to somehow motivate you or guilt you into casting your ballot on November the 6th. But what I want us to consider is, as God's children, what is our primary responsibility to the government that we find ourselves under? act seventeen twenty six tells us that the fall of nations and empires and their specific geographical locations are sovereignly appointed by God himself so if that is true and we believe that it is because it's in God's Word what does that mean for us as Christians how do we relate to our government regardless of which party is in the majority or which candidate may be in the White House Do we, as some do, utterly reject or despise all government because it's full of corruption, full of scandals, full of evil? Do evangelism, not politics, some Christians would say. Or do we, as some others would do, focus much time and energy in government, hoping that if government can somehow become good, at least somewhat, then maybe the people and the society will also eventually become better. Now this is a broad subject and uh, one we cannot fully cover in the next few minutes, but I believe that what we are going to look at this morning is where our discussion and views of government and politics should begin. And even though all of our questions regarding this subject may not be answered today, I pray that the truths that we consider together would give us a proper foundation from which to approach some of those more difficult issues so as we look forward either with anticipation or apprehension to the next chapter of our nation's political story as it were what instruction does the bible give us romans chapter 13 verses one through seven the passage that was read for us and which will be our text this morning this is the most definitive passage in the new testament that talks about our relationship to the governing authorities i'd like to divide the passage in this way for our consideration the first part of verse one the command versus the second part of verse one all the way down to verse five the reasons for that command and in verses six and seven the practical application of the command. So the command, the reasons for the command, and how we can apply that command in our daily life. Now, before getting into the text, uh, in what context are these words written? The Apostle Paul is the author of the Epistle to the Romans. And in chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that this book is addressed to Christians who are in Rome. Paul has not yet visited them, although he hopes to do so. Verses 9-11 through of chapter 1 make that clear. And based on some verses in chapter 15, it seems that his expectation or his desire to visit them is going to soon be fulfilled. Now, one of the main purposes of the book of Romans is to explain the various aspects of the gospel or the good news. And we can say that the primary theme of the book is the righteousness of God, as revealed in that gospel. So in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3, we see the righteousness of God in judgment or condemnation. In chapters 3 through 5, we see the righteousness of God in justification, how the Lord Jesus Christ saved us through his work on the cross. In chapters 6 through 8, we see the righteousness of God in sanctification, which simply means how the Spirit of God works in us to produce holiness. In chapters 9 through 11, we see the righteousness of God in election, specifically His sovereign choice of the nation Israel. And in chapters 12 through 15, the section in which our passage occurs, the righteousness of God in transformation. This gospel, this righteousness, what kind of change does it produce in the life of God's children? In the first 11 chapters of this book, Paul has been focused more on the nature of the true gospel. What we might refer to as the theory part of it. But chapter 12 marks a change where he is shifting more to the practical application. And many of us might be familiar with those first two verses in chapter 12. I'll just read that for us, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in the remaining verses for the remainder of this book, Paul is going to explain how exactly we can be that living sacrifice. How exactly we can reflect a transformed mind. How exactly we can prove God's good and perfect and pleasing will. Now coming back to chapter 13, also in terms of context, since we are dealing with instructions in relation to government and the governing authorities what was going on in that particular time in the context of Paul's original readers. Now this letter was written around uh, AD 57 and Emperor Nero was in power. But history suggests that during the first part of his reign there was really no indication that he was a tyrant or a brutal ruler. Although later he would be one. As some historians have said in the latter part of his reign he would make up for those lost years in the early part of his reign. Claudius, the previous emperor, had expelled the Jews from Rome a few years before because he viewed them as dangerous. Acts chapter 18 verse 2 gives us that information. And the Roman authorities often viewed Christians as a Jewish sect so that suspicion of revolution or rebellion was always a concern in their minds. It is in this context we come to our passage in chapter 13. Firstly, the command. The first part of verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every soul or every person be subject or be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now Paul gives us a very clear categorical command at the beginning of the text and the commandment is addressed to all mankind without exception although given the context of the epistle Paul probably primarily had in mind Christians every person is required to be in subjection to the governing authorities now when we think of the word subjection we might often think of the word obedience and it definitely does include the idea of obedience But really, subjection goes beyond just mere obedience, mere external obedience. One author has said it this way subjection focuses on the spirit or the attitude of the individual, which leads to our obedience. It implies a spirit which seeks to understand the perspective and the purpose of the one who is in command or in authority. And to seek to enhance that perspective and purpose in our own life. And the Greek word for subjection that Paul used was used of a soldier's absolute obedience to his superior or commanding officer. So it's not only showing obedience in terms of what is done, which is the action, but also in terms of how it is done. The attitude or the thought behind it. Now, we find various uh, authority structures in place uh, in the Bible. Uh, Church leaders' authority, parental authority, a master or employer's authority. But the authority which Paul is talking about here in verse 1 of Romans 13 is the governing authority, those who rule over us politically. So the command is clear, it's concise, it's to the point. Submit to, obey, respect, or summing that up in one word, be in subjection to the leaders of your country. Now we're probably thinking, all the time? In any and every situation? Well, Paul doesn't address the exceptions here, but keeping in mind other parts of scripture, we do know that there is one exception to this rule. What is that exception? When obedience to civil authority would require disobedience God's word, when obedience to civil authority would require disobedience to God's word to his truth. So in the Old Testament, we think of people like the midwives in Exodus 1 who refused to kill the male babies at Pharaoh's command. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 who disobeyed the king's order to bow down to the image he had set up. Also in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, we think of Daniel who Disobey the king's order not to pray to anyone but the king. And we remember Peter's bold declaration in Acts chapter 5, where he told the authorities who commanded him and the other apostles not to preach in Jesus' name, we must obey God rather than men. So yes, there is that exception to the rule. Whenever the governing authorities ask us to do something that would go against God's word, His standard, His truth, We cannot and we should not be subject to them. But coming back to our text here, Paul is not talking about that exception. He is speaking of the general principle. Be subject to the government. He wrote similarly in Titus 3 verse 1, Remind your people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 13, "...submit yourself to every ordinance of man, whether to the king or to governors." Now notice also in Romans 13.1 and also in Titus and Peter, no mention is made of the ability or the competency of the governing authorities in any of these verses. This is not a case of, well, I'll submit if I think they're smart or they, I think they know what they're doing. I'll submit if I like their policies, if their policies, if their laws benefit me, if it helps me, then I will submit. No. Then on what basis do we submit? How can Paul issue such a categorical command? Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage, the reasons for the command. The first reason is found in the second part of verse 1, Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God Paul is going to give us five reasons in these verses why we should be in subjection to the governing authorities the command he gave us in verse one and the first reason the second part of verse one that we just read we need to be in subjection because all governing authorities have been put there by God in other words Paul's entire argument is based on a fundamental premise. God is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from Him allowing it. No government exists apart from God's sovereign will. Now, this does not mean that God approves of all that human rulers do. But the fact remains that the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Their authority is derived from and is defined by none other than God Himself. You know, we often find comfort in God's sovereignty in um, many aspects of our life, don't we? In times of sickness, in times of sorrow, or other problems we encounter as living in this world. We often seek refuge in the fact that God is in total control, no matter what happens. Well, Paul is reminding us here, that same attribute of God that gives us comfort in times of trouble or sickness or sorrow should also give us trouble when it comes to our rulers when it comes to our government ultimately those who are elected are not there because they got the majority vote or they won the electoral college or they had the best campaign or they happened to be born into the right family every single person in a position of civil authority in this world is in that position because God, the God of the universe, has allowed them to be there. So that is the first reason we need to submit. Because our rulers have been appointed by God. Now, we may not understand why God allows some people to come into certain positions of authority. But just as we try to do in other areas of our life we don't understand, we trust in His sovereignty. What is the second reason we need to be subject to the governing authorities? Verse 2, Romans chapter 13. Paul writes, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So the second reason we need to submit, because resisting government is equivalent to resisting God. If we really believe that God is sovereign that those who are in power have been put there with God's sovereign permission, then if we disobey them, in reality, we are disobeying God himself. And the literal reading there in verse 2 is, anyone who takes a stand against. So if you take a stand against the government, provided the government is not asking you to do something against God's word, what Paul is saying is, you are really taking a stand against God himself. We think of the Lord's words to uh, Saul on that Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't on this earth when Saul was persecuting Christians or the church. But it was equivalent to persecuting Christ because Christians and the church were the representatives of Christ on this earth. In the same way Paul is saying, since all government is ordained by God, what he said in verse 1 rebellion against government is rebellion against god look at the third reason he mentions as to why we should be subject to government the second part of verse 2 those who resist will bring judgment on themselves look at verse 3 for rulers are not a terror to good good works but to evil do you want to be unafraid of the authority do what is good and you will have praise from the same. The second part of verse 4. For he that is the government, the authority, is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And the first part of verse 5. You must be subject because of wrath. So the third reason we need to be subject to the governing authorities And here Paul lays out really one of the main reasons or purposes for God instituting government among human beings. That is to punish those who do wrong and to act as a deterrent to crime. So if we refuse to obey government, Paul says, we should only expect to receive judgment, verse 2, terror, verse 3, and wrath, verses 4 and 5. Paul is saying is, If you break the laws, government is there to punish. If they don't punish, they are not fulfilling one of their primary God-given responsibilities. Now, do we have to live in fear of the authorities? Do we have to look over our shoulder when doing something? Well, not if we are doing what is right, not if we are law-abiding citizens. And Paul says in the end of verse 3 that even godless governments would commend people who obey their laws. But if we do evil, if we do what is wrong, what we would refer to as illegal, then Paul says in verse 4, we should live in fear because part of the reason, one of the primary reasons that government is ordained by God is to punish evil. You know, many times when it comes to this aspect of government, uh, most of us have probably held a double standard, right? We want the government to catch everyone else doing things that are wrong, but if we ever find ourselves doing the same thing we hope the government will not catch us well Paul is reminding us that's not how it works just because we are Christians does not mean we don't have to obey government yes Philippians 3:20 says our citizenship is in heaven our primary identity is not found in the pages of our passport or other government issued identification but just because we are christians does not mean that we will be exempt from the punishments that governments give to people under them so yes based on these verses we should have a healthy fear of government knowing that god has given them the responsibility of punishing crime sometimes even to an extreme extent as indicated by the use of the word sword in verse four the fourth reason Paul gives for our subjection to government is one I find the most difficult to accept or understand because of the terminology Paul uses. Look at the first part of verse 4, Romans 13. For he is God's minister. The middle of verse 4, for he is God's minister. And the middle of verse 6, for they are God's ministers. We should be subject to the governing authorities because they are the ministers or the servants of God. Now we read that and we may be thinking, Paul, have you seen our politicians? The way they talk, the way they think, the way they behave. Are you sure you didn't mean ministers of the devil? But remember... Paul was writing at a time when rulers often afflicted people with far worse treatment than what we have, at least in our country today. You had mentioned uh, Emperor Nero a few minutes ago. In reference to the latter part of his reign, one historian says, those were dark days for Christians. He caused some Christians to be immersed in tar, then ignited as living torches to provide illumination, for his orgies. Others were sewn up in animal skins, then thrown to ferocious dogs to be torn to pieces. So how can Paul call government leaders ministers of God? And he uses the expression three times, twice in verse 4 and one in verse 6. So this is not just some uh, slip of the pen, as it were. Well, it means that government leaders are representatives of the Lord. And this ties back to reason one where we saw that government is divinely ordained by God. So even though the political leaders may not know God or be true Christians, they are still the official representatives of God on this earth. One author has explained it this way. As ministers of God, government's task is to serve God by dealing appropriately with those who do good and also those who do evil god's purpose for human government is to commend those who do good and to punish those who do evil and this purpose of commending those who do good and punishing those who do evil is consistent with god's purpose for the life of every individual christian in fact just in the chapter before romans chapter twelve and verse nine paul has written abhor what is evil cling to what is good Therefore God's purposes for us and as, in, us as individuals and God's purpose for community, for government are in harmony. As Christians we should avoid evil and cling to what is good. Government is supposed to punish those who do evil and commend those who do good. In this way they act as ministers or servants of God. This is also why in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 Paul reminds us that we need to diligently pray for all those who are in authority the final reason we should submit to government is found in verse 5 Romans chapter 13 therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath but also for conscience sake now we've already looked at yes one reason to be in subjection is to avoid punishment to avoid wrath judgment we might call that the external reason but here Paul says there is an internal reason as well now we know that all human beings not just Christians we are created with a conscience but for the believer maintaining a clear conscience is given as a solemn responsibility in the pages of the New Testament and the Apostle Paul himself had much to say about this I'll just quote a few verses for you in Acts 24, verse 16, Paul said, I always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. In 2 Corinthians 8:12, he said, Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in godly sincerity. And in 1 Timothy 1:15, Paul wrote, Now the purpose of our commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good or a clean conscience. So it's important as Christians to maintain a clear conscience before God. And one of the ways we do this, Paul says, is in our subjection to the governing authorities. So we have seen the command and the reasons for the command. What is the command? Be subject to the governing authorities God has placed over you. What are the reasons for that command? Well, firstly, because they have been appointed by God. Secondly, because disobeying them is equivalent to disobeying God. Thirdly, because of the fear of punishment. Fourth, because they are the ministers or servants of God on this earth. And fifthly, because of conscience sake. Now how does he end this section? Verses 6 and 7. After giving us the command and the reasons for the command, Paul gives us the application of, of the command and of all the things that he could have picked you know many times when we look at God's Word or we hear a message the primary question or sometimes complaint people may have well, how do I apply it well here he is going to give us an application but did you really want this application well it's God's Word to us what does he say verse 6 for because of this you also pay taxes. So of all the things he could have picked in terms of how we apply the command and the reasons for the command he has just mentioned, he uses taxes as the example. Now I'm sure uh, hearing that word provokes certain emotions in, in all of us. Those of us who get a paycheck, you've had the experience of seeing a larger number at the top, many, many deductions and oftentimes a much smaller number at the bottom. Income tax, sales tax, property tax, the list goes on now the Greek word here for taxes referred specifically to taxes paid by individuals particularly those living in a conquered nation to their foreign rulers so that made the tax even worse But what is Paul saying here pay taxes if you feel like it does anyone ever feel like paying taxes Pay taxes if you have money to spare. Even if you did have money to spare, would you want to give it to the government? Pay taxes if you agree with all of the policies of the government? No, that's not what he says. He says you pay taxes because that is how you show you are in subjection to the governing authorities as ministers of God. That is one way you support them as they carry out their God-given tasks. Now we think of the incident in Matthew 22 where the religious leaders tested Jesus or tried to test him by asking him whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar and you remember his answer render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's in other words if Caesar is your ruler you must pay taxes to him even though Caesar himself may not be a Christian or a godly man the fact that Christians are citizens of heaven does not exempt them from their earthly responsibility in this way So I can't say, well, you know, whatever money I would have paid in taxes, I'm just going to send to a missionary somewhere or give to the church. It's good to give to missionaries and to the church. But Paul says here, it is also our responsibility to give to the government in the form of taxes. And Paul sums it up in verse 7. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, and fear and honor to whom fear and honor are due. So it's not just the tangible application in terms of the taxes or the customs or whatever else amount we might pay. But Paul also, he closes the section by saying, even honor, even respect. Uh, One commentator I came across had a good application of the word honor in verse 7. He says... Christians should never join in speaking in a derogatory way of the rulers of our land, particularly those in the highest office, like the president. Even in the heat of a political campaign, they should refuse to join in the verbal abuse that is heaped upon government leaders. We must show honor and hold in high esteem all civil servants, even though we may not always agree with their personal lives or public policies. So the application, pay your taxes and honor and respect your leaders. You know, when we look at the world around us, things seem to be going from bad to worse. Morality is fast disappearing. Every day it seems like there is some new scandal in politics or that the natural calamities around us are ever increasing. Crime is only on the rise. Now, do we really expect government to make this world a better place? Well, you we remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 18. And I'd just like to read that for you. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. John chapter 18 and verse 36. John 18 and 36. Here Jesus being questioned by Pilate. And Pilate seems to recognize that Jesus is some kind of a king. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. And this ties into Philippians 3, 20, which I quoted earlier that says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So yes, God has instituted governments for us while we are on this earth. They are necessary. But our primary identity is not just as a United States citizen or whatever country we may belong to. As Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And this morning, if you are a child of God, that's really our comfort that we are waiting for something far better than what we see around us now yes God has instituted governments and we've seen from Romans 13 clearly what governments role is and what our responsibility is to that government but we don't put our trust solely in any man or woman or political party to advance God's plans and purposes for these for this age all these political systems are Temporary. They serve a function for a certain time, but they're only temporary. I think in the Old Testament of King David, when he was fleeing from Saul, at one point in the book of 2 Samuel, I believe it is, he came across Saul lying in the camp at night. He had a spear in his hand. The person next to him said, Why don't you just finish off your enemy here? Remember, Saul knew that God had given the kingdom to David, and yet Saul was refusing to accept that, and he was trying to take David's life. But if you remember David's words, and I'm just paraphrasing here, how dare I put my hand on God's anointed one? Now, when we think of King Saul, not a very godly king, In fact a lot of debate even among Christians as to whether someone like Saul will be in heaven. When we think of Saul we don't think of accomplishments we think of his sins his moral failures and yet despite all that David's testimony was I'm not the one responsible for taking the life of King Saul now because he is God's appointed one God will determine when and where and how his life should end. So what David is saying in effect Yes, Saul is not someone who necessarily always follows God's command or who does what is right. But if he is king at this time, he is king because God has allowed him to be king. And even though I may not agree with everything Saul does, I still have to respect the position and the office that he holds. And I think coming back to Romans chapter 13 and verse 7, where Paul says we need to honor those who are in office, that's exactly the application for us. I want to close with a verse in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. I mentioned how, yes, government is instituted by God. Those in authority are the servants of God. And they serve a function. They serve a purpose during this age. But our ultimate hope is not in any government our hope is in the god who instituted the government second peter chapter 3 and verse 10 peter writes but the day of the lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements with, will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up therefore since all these things will be dissolved What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And really verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, and this is something that no government, well, they might promise it, but they can never deliver on it. Nevertheless, we according to His, that is according to God's promise, the same God who instituted these governments, according to His promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. No government will be able to give us that kind of a heaven or earth now. But even as we live in this fallen world, even with all the moral decay and the calamities and even the failure of our governments. That is our hope. That is our comfort. And my question to you this morning is, will you be in that new heaven and that new earth where righteousness dwells? And how can righteousness dwell in that heaven and earth? Because God himself is our government. God himself will be our king and our ruler. This morning I pray that what we have considered together would be an encouragement to us. As I said at the beginning, I know I have not answered all the questions we may have in relation to government, but I believe that whatever else we might discuss or debate or opine about in relation to government, if we don't have the foundation that we looked at from Romans 13, then we will end up having a skewed perspective, a wrong perception. So I hope that what we have uh, covered this morning would give us that right perspective, even as we continue to struggle through some of these other more difficult issues in terms of government and how we as a Christian relate to that government, shall we pray.